It's timely. It's insightful. It's motivating. It's empowering. It's time with Fred, your inspirational broadcast with host Fred Gaddy. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Time with Fred podcast. This is a podcast that challenges paradigms and mindsets that hold us back. This podcast can be heard on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and also TuneIn. Uh, today I have with me um, uh, Mr. Hugh Burton. Uh, Mr. Hugh Burton has a very, very powerful story that has so many lessons that you definitely want to stick around to hear. Uh, there's quite a bit about forgiveness, about overcoming adversity, about resilience, and all of that in the story. But the year was uh, 1991 when uh, Hugh's world was, was turned upside down. Um, he was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he didn't commit, and as a result, spent 19 years in prison. But thankfully to, uh, to the Innocence Project, an organization that kind of helps um, uh, get people out who've been wrongfully convicted, uh, were able to turn uh, Hugh's uh, sentence um, that happened as a result of uh, coercive investigative techniques and all of that. But he was going to go into that story. But Mr. Huberton, thank you so much for coming on the Time with Fred podcast uh, today to share your story. Thank you so much. Again, thank you so much for having me. Um, so my story actually starts uh, in 1989, um, you know, January 3rd. Um, it was my first day back to school after the holiday break. Uh, my mom was just starting a two-week vacation. Uh, she was a registered nurse. And my dad was out of the country at the time. He was visiting his mom in Jamaica. Um, the day started as normal as any other day. I got up for school. I got dressed. I washed. I, you know, ate. Um, and I left my mom sitting on the couch. And she said, you know, we joked about uh, doing better in school for this semester. And uh, that was the last thing I said to her, and I left. I went to school. I stayed there for the duration of the day, and I came home. When I got home that afternoon, I noticed that her car wasn't in the driveway. So thinking that, you know, she's just starting a vacation, she's out shopping or running errands or something. So as I come into the house, I can hear the phone ringing upstairs. So I run to our apartment, and I open the door and I grabbed the phone. It's a girlfriend of mine at the time and she asked if I could come by. Um, seeing that my mom wasn't home, I said, okay, well, I could go there and come back. By the time I got back, she should be home. So I left, turned right around out the door, closed the door, left, uh, went to my girlfriend's house and came back about 5.30 or so. I noticed that the car was still gone. So I, got, I came inside, I took off my things, took off my coat and I'm walking towards the back of the apartment where our bedrooms were, my parents' bedroom and my bedroom were in the back. I noticed that my parents' bedroom, the door was, uh, it was ajar, and which was strange. If no one was in the house, we usually closed doors. So that kind of prompted me to go into the room. I went into the bedroom and I had found my mom. She had been stabbed to death. Um, I, I'm screaming, I'm crying. I went to grab the phone that was in the bedroom to call the police, but I had noticed that the cord from the base of the phone to the um, receiver of the phone was gone. They had bound her wrist with the, uh, with the cord. So I ran out 
to the phone in the hallway and I'd call the police and I couldn't, I couldn't stay in the house. So I ran, ran outside and just waited for the police. Uh, they finally got there. Uh, the precinct wasn't too far from where we lived in the Bronx. They got there. Um, I told them what I'd come home to find. Um, they asked me my whereabouts for the day. Um, I told them where I was at. Uh, I told them that my dad wasn't in the country at the time. Uh, they asked me if I had any other family or anybody else. They also asked me if I noticed if anything was uh, out of the ordinary or strange. I told them that her car is gone. It's the only thing, you know, her car is gone. So um, they, they had me notify, had me call my dad in Jamaica. He took the first flight back to the States. That night I had stayed at a godmother's house who lived not too far from us in the Bronx. She lived in Mount Vernon, so I stayed there. Um, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't hold down any food. I think I slept in like 15 or 20 minute intervals. Um, on the 5th of January, they called my godmother, the police from the 47th precinct, they called my godmother and they asked her uh, if they could come by and take me down for a polygraph test. How old were you then? I was 16. Okay. And they uh, said they just, you know, just when it was, they was gonna come by real quick. I didn't have the desire to get out of bed. I didn't, I didn't have the desire to really move but I wanted to know what happened to my mom. So, you know, reluctantly I, I went. Um, so they came and got me and they brought me down to the precinct and they asked me again, the same questions they asked me. After maybe about an hour and a half of going through this, um, it turned from asking me uh, about my whereabouts that day and it became accusatory and they were saying that they had evidence that uh, led them to believe that I was the one who actually killed my mom. Um, afraid, scared to death, I, so I start crying and I'm telling them that no, I, I didn't commit this crime and I wanted to see my dad. Um, they told me that um, I would see my dad after I told them what they needed to hear. This goes on for a while and I'm telling them that I didn't. And they're saying, well, we know that you weren't in school that day and I knew I, I, knew I was in school. I, I knew I went to school, it was the first day back from the holiday break. So this goes on, it goes on. So finally they tell me that um, we know that you went to your girlfriend's house. Um, you know that um, she is uh, almost three years younger than you are. Um, that it constitutes statutory rape. I had never heard of the term before. Um, they also knew they had, that I had never had any interaction or involvement with police before, so I didn't know a lot of these things. Um, they told me, ultimately they told me that if I didn't tell them that I committed this crime, not only would I go to prison for the murder of my mom, but I would also be sent there for statutory rape as well. But if I did tell them that I did commit this crime, I would not go to prison uh, for statutory rape and my dad could come and pick me up. So what, what, what they were using at the time is what's described as a psychologically coercive techniques, right? And when I was watching your, your press conference um, after the, the, the judge pronounced your, um, your, your acquittal, uh, I think a question was posed to one of the spokespeople, the lady who said, I think he was asked whether these, um, I guess, detectives who 
used these techniques were, were, were sentenced. And the answer was that it, what they used back then, these psychological coercive techniques weren't necessarily wrong, right? They were just techniques that were used at the time, right? And so they were, I guess they were allowed to, to, to go. But uh, did you have any idea that this was something that was gonna lead you down uh, the path of uh, being convicted with these questions and how they were interrogating you? No, you have to understand that in my 16-year-old mind, even as they're leading me out of the precinct, I'm still believing that I'm going to family court and my dad is going to pick me up and I'm going to explain to him when I see him, listen, daddy, they just, they made me say that. That's the only thing they said that this was going to be okay. Hmm. So, um, I, you know, I didn't really understand what was going on yeah. until... I finally got into central booking and I said, no, this is very, very serious. And then seeing yourself on the news, seeing yourself in newspapers, hearing radio, mm. uh, people talk about you as you're listening. Um, I realized at that point that um, I was in something that I didn't, I didn't cause and I didn't know how to uh, begin the process of explaining that I didn't commit this crime. So. But you had to, you, you were able to recant yourself. However, that, that didn't work, right? I mean, you had no. to go back to say, look, this was not the case, right? But no. I guess you took your word for it the first time. We, um, what, what ended up happening, once they coerced a confession out of me, hearing anything of a, of a recanted statement yeah. uh, was, that was something that they didn't want to get involved yeah. with because then they would have to um, answer the question, mm -hmm. well, what did you do to a 16 mm -hmm make him say he committed something so right heavy. right so instead of doing that they kind of doubled down on all of their efforts to make sure that these things um stuck so did you, did you go to court to argue out your case back then yes um well the way that this goes is um they took me to central booking from there and um you know you were arraigned and um i was sent to rikers island from there um, my dad and I, we fought for 23 months, um, close to three years, and that brought us to 1991, and that's when I um, lost trial, and I was sentenced to 15 to life. 15 years imprisonment for a yeah. crime you didn't commit. Yeah, fifth, actually 15 to life. Uh, what's interesting about New York's um, sentencing is that people look at the number that is in front as that's what you were sentenced to. No, it's the number in the back. The number in the front is the condition that we will let you go after this amount of time if you've done what we've asked you to do, but you've actually been sentenced to life. To life imprisonment. That's what you've been sentenced to, you know. Wow. So again, the front number is just a condition, 25 to life. It's you can get out after 25 years on conditions but you have been sentenced to life we can do this indefinitely we don't have to let you go wow so i was uh, i was sentenced to 15 to life and um i was sent upstate in 1992 um my father still an advocate of uh, for my innocence and just making sure that i was supported throughout the whole ordeal um we were appealing and uh, our appeals were denied um, and finally, um, his health began to fail and, you know, they were telling us that we didn't have anything that was worth a federal review. So I was kind of stuck 
during the time, but I never stopped writing to people, just trying to get someone just to take a look at the case and, you know, just to hear me out. You know, I, you spend years trying to get people to, to hear you and everything just falls on deaf ears. So um, finally, you know, um, after 19, well, a actually after 20 years, eight months altogether, um, they finally uh, paroled me in 2009. But this was it, after you'd spent 20 years yeah. in jail. Mm -hmm. And still, um, the truth had not been brought to light. So, you know, given what the gravity of the circumstances of the case was, I could not just settle with um, coming home and trying to find a job and being normal. It's like you have to really, really find out. You know, you have to prove your innocence. You have to give back this burden that wasn't yours to bear. So um, that set off the next 10 years. So from 2009 until 2019, uh, we fought, we put together, put the case back together, uh, looked at all of the evidence and presented it and had people look at it. And um, our position made good sense and it, they knew that this guy didn't commit this crime. So finally, um, last year, January 24th, they exonerated me, so. So, so he, you fought for the entire 19 or 20 years while you're, while you're in jail. You kept, you didn't give up. Right. What is it that makes an individual in your case, you not give up after year one, after year two, after year five, after year 10, after year 15, getting nowhere? What is it that keeps you fighting knowing full well that this case is not getting what was it that kept you going I'm, I'm just curious um we often say i think we say it so much that it kind of loses its um strength but when, when we say truth is power um that is the only thing that i had and i had my father so those two things um knowing that i'm going to bed every night and in my heart i know i'm not supposed to be here and then to watch um, the sacrifices of my father throughout all of the years. It's like you are managing to create a defense for me and you had the burden of burying your wife and dealing with that simultaneously and still keeping your sanity and your dignity, you know? So um, if you can't draw strength from that, I don't know what you can. I don't know where you can draw it from, you know? One of the things you said when you were giving your press conference, um, I think standing on the, on the footsteps of the court, mm. um, I think one of the reporters that asked you, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm making this is emotional for you. I can only mm. imagine, but you, they asked you, what was it that kept you going? And you mentioned the values that you received from, from your parents and you mentioned um, patience and you mentioned perseverance. Yeah. How powerful are these values that your parents gave you? Um, very, very, um, even now, um, even what we're going through as a society and now is an exercise in patience. Um, we have to be patient with everything in which we're going through. So for me, um, I, knew, I knew one day that this was going to be, I didn't know it was gonna take this long. And I would just say to myself, you know, just, just be patient, just be, just be patient. And perseverance, um, you have two choices inside there when you're there. You can just lay down 
um, and just say, okay, well, whatever comes, I'll just do the time. Or you can say, okay, I am in a situation, but I still have to grow as a human being. And when you make the decision that I'm going to grow as a human being, it doesn't matter what space that you're kind of confined in, you're gonna thrive, you're gonna grow. So the persistence with that and knowing that, okay, we're gonna to get to the truth. You cannot continue to keep it buried, but for so long. Again, as I said, I didn't think it was gonna take 30 years. For what they knew, less than two weeks after it happened, they knew. They knew the truth. They had the true person who committed the crime and decided that, no, we're going to double down on what we did. Because then if they did, then it would, it would, uh, it would prove where the holes in their investigations, right? Because it took only 40, 48 hours, right, for them to reach this verdict, right? 48, just two um, days after the crime was committed? 48 hours, they, they arrested me. Um, what was interesting, um, and I think what is so um, disrespectful on, on its face is that on the day of my mom's funeral, I was indicted, but also on that day, they found the car. And they found the person driving the car in Mount Vernon, not far from where we lived. So the arresting officers in my case said, well, great, we can finally close this whole thing off altogether. They got to the precinct in Mount Vernon and to their horror, it was our tenant who was in possession of the car. Uh, a person who they questioned on the 3rd of January and they deemed him to be a person that wasn't important. Now they had a, a very, very serious problem. I was on the cover of every newspaper in this city every news channel. Now you have to explain how the guy you questioned first mm. is in possession of the car and had been driving the car every day yeah. since. And what did you do to this child mm. to make him say he committed something as heinous committing his mom, killing his mom? What, 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 what did you say or do to him? They didn't want to have to answer those questions. Yeah. So um, they hid, they hid the truth mm. and they passed the book into the courtroom mm. where the prosecutors kept the ball going and hid the truth. So much so that it would not have mattered who was at my defense table. I could have had Moses, anybody at Jesus, anybody at my defense table. I was not going to win that trial. And so here you are, you know, your mom had just been murdered. And I'd imagine that you hadn't even come to terms with the fact that your mom had, had, had died, right? You were, that was a challenge in itself because you're dealing with that grief. And on top of that, you're dealing with this, you know, uh, this, this uh, I guess, wrongful conviction in your case. So these were two different emotional challenges that you're dealing with, right? Um, your dad's health and all of that. Uh, were you bitter? Goes without saying, but I'll ask. Were you bitter? Were you upset? Um, angry. Mm. angry. I, you know, I think it's, um, I think it's a bit different than being bitter. Um, I, I think bitter is, you know, when uh, there's something uh, done and it's like mm. you know, mm. just angry about it. But mm. um, no, I, I wasn't bitter. I was, I was angry. Who at? Who are you angry at? Um. 
first, it took me years not to be angry at the 16-year-old who allowed them to do that to him. It took me a long time, a long, long time to say. So you're, you're, you're angry at yourself. You, you hated yourself. Yeah. Well, not, no, I didn't hate, definitely didn't hate myself. No, 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 no. I was angry at the fact that, you know, you let them do this. You, tr you trusted them. I was angry at the fact that I trusted them. You didn't know any better, right? You didn't know that this is what it was going to lead to. Yeah, I know. I definitely didn't know. And, you know, it's how naive of me, even being led out of the precinct, I'm still thinking I'm going to family court and my dad is going to come pick me up and I'll be able to explain this to him because he knows I didn't do this. While you were serving time, Hugh, did you, did you have that hope, even though you're fighting and writing, did you have hope that one day you're going to be exonerated? Yes. Yes. Um, you have to hold on to something. Um, some people um, hold on to religion when you're inside there, whatever it is they embrace. Um, for me, it was simply just embracing the truth and knowing that I wanted to be here. Uh, you know, not here, here but just here. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what it was for me. And so how did you feel like when you were in the courtroom, I was watching the video, um, and you heard those words from the judge um, dismissing the case or vacating the case in legal terms. How, how did you feel then when you heard those words? I, I felt as if a great burden was lifted off of me. Um, as I said, it was a burden that wasn't mine to carry. Um, but it was, it was bittersweet. It was bittersweet because my dad didn't live long enough to see me come out, and he didn't live long enough to see this day. Um, and your dad died, your dad died while, while you were serving time? Yes, 2005. So that, that, that made it, that made it uh, even more emotional for you. Mom dies, you're convicted, and then throughout this process, dad dies while you're still serving time. Now, at that point, what was happening to you mentally here, knowing, do you think it was, did your, did your incarceration wrongful, incarceration add to dad's um, failing health? Was it, do you think that impacted his, uh, his health in any way? Um, I think all of this, um impacted his health all of it i mean let's let's look at it let's unpack it um you leave to go on vacation to mm -hmm. visit your mom because there was a hurricane some months prior mm -hmm. you come back your wife is murdered and your son is in prison mm -hmm. because they're saying he took her life whatever savings you amassed in the country you have to take it to bury your wife and defend your son. Mm. You are ostracized by the community, mm -hmm. talked about by your friends. Your family are not doing what they're supposed to do. But still, saying, I'm going to get to the truth of this. For me, um, my exoneration uh, was just a, a great, great, great thing. But it was something that I had been saying for 30 years. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, the next question that needs to be asked is who killed Keziah Burton? Because we're saying Hugh Burton didn't. Mm. Somebody 
and people have to be held accountable. Mm. And so these are the things that drive me. These are the things that give me purpose because I got my exoneration. My parents never got theirs. Mm. Mm. Never got theirs. So when you, when you look at life, when you look down on the past, however many years, 20, 30 years, um, what does life mean to you now? What does life mean to me in, tw in 20, 30 years? Yeah, over the course of everything that you've gone through. To really, to really live and be free as a man, the true tenets of being free. Um, the tenets that governments, you know, when they say they're free, when you have land, when, when you're able to be self-sufficient, these are the things I want for myself um, 20, 30 years from now. My dad, he would try to teach me how to farm at the house on the side of the Bronx. In the early 80s, late 70s, I could not process why we were growing food on the side of the house when the supermarket was up the street. Mm. I understand the value of having the ability to grow your own. Mm ability to have land so I understand that so he was although he wasn't academically astute the like the life lessons he taught me it's like now they make sense valuable yeah you know yeah. so that's what that's what I see what what defines you now um you know there are a lot of people who go through life and who allow you know the past mistakes the pain the regrets, the failures, uh, and rightfully so, not to min minimize any of that. But to define them, a lot of people find themselves caught or stuck in, in, in the yesteryear, right, in the mistakes and all of that. Um, and so that's what defines them. If I were to ask you now, again, looking back, what defines you now, having been through all that you've been through? What would you say defines Hubert? What defines Hubert? Um, you know, all of the all of those things uh, define Hugh Burton. Um, the, from the rearing of my parents, the lessons that they tried to teach, the hard work, um, you know, just working countless hours just to try to make something happen. That makes Hugh Hugh Burton. Um, the twenty-year experience, the tenure that I had spent inside prison, um, they're not they're not great memories, but. I did a lot of great things as an individual for myself, for my own growth. So the 20 year experience in it defines me. Everything that I'm doing now, advocating for people who were still there, defines me. Making sure that this doesn't happen to people again because it's still happening. Although criminal justice reform is the hot button issue right now. Mm -hmm. Happening, and when people go back to their normal thing that they do, it's still going to be an issue. So these are the things that define me. Now, when I think you were asked the question again um, after you were um, you were exonerated, I think one of the reporters asked you, "What are what are you going to do now?" And that you had answered, "I think you're going to." You said you're going to go run the the marathon in New York. Did you really run that marathon? I really ran that marathon. I really did. Um, it was it was actually uh, it was actually my second marathon, um, but that marathon was a little bit different than one last year. Um, I was exonerated, 
by the time that marathon happened. But um, I took my time running it. And the reason, because I wanted to treat it as a victory lap around this city. Um, from the city that had taken so much from me, I was able to jog around it. And I jogged almost by the uh, Bronx Supreme Court. I could see it in the distance. And to be free and running and running right past it, I felt mm -hmm. good. Felt real good. And you also said that you're going to spend um, your time helping other other people. Um, are you are you doing that now? I I didn't catch the last thing you said. I think you're breaking up. Thank you. You mentioned that you're going to spend the rest of your your time or, or life helping others who have gone through similar situations. Are you are you doing that now? Um. Well, pretty much what I'm doing is just talking to bring awareness to it. I, and there is one. Um, there is one case that really um, kind of, every time I think about it, I kind of, I don't know, um, it's a young man, uh, his name is uh, Chanel Lewis. And um, he was convicted of, um, I think he was killed, he got, got convicted of killing a jogger. I don't know if it was Long Island or Queens, uh, female jogger, but, um, when I was looking at him in court and um, watching him, you know, there was a look that he had and I didn't know why this look seemed so familiar to me. And it was like a look of bewilderment. And I remembered where I saw that it was me when I was 18 in the courtroom and it felt like people were just talking around you, making decisions about your life. And you knew that somehow, some way you were going to be impacted by it and not in a good way. So um, that that case kind of, um, I don't know, it's just something doesn't feel right. They packed that too neatly for me. I, I don't know. So. <laughs> wow. Keith, um, there's someone watching this right now um, who may not necessarily be physically um, locked up, but perhaps locked up in their mind, um, locked up in whatever life situation, or maybe let's even relate it to what we're going through right now. There's a lot of um, uncertainty um, as to what's going to happen, what's not going to happen, you know, with, with COVID-19 and, and the social and racial unrest that we're going through right now. Um, and so there are a lot of people out there feeling fear and uncertainty and anxiety. Uh, what would you say, um, having been through... <laughs> Your, your own lockup, right, physically. Um, what would you say to someone listening to this podcast or maybe watching um, right now? Any, any words of advice? Yeah, um, everything that you are going through, um, it's really life's way of showing you your own strengths. And it's for you to embrace it. Don't, don't, don't run away from it. Don't shirk it. I'm not saying... Uh, look for hard times, look for pain. I'm not saying to do that. I'm just saying that when it, when it happens, because in life, sadly, it happens at, you know, at some point or another, it's going to happen. Um, it's to show you something about how strong you are as a person. People ask me, um, well, how did you uh, do all of that time? And I said the first thing by not asking how am I going to do all of this time? Um, the how is was none of my business. Mm. <laughs> you know, the, the how was none of my business. So um, I just knew that I was going to get through this and, you know, this was going to be made right again. I didn't think it would take three decades. 
<laughs> but, um, you know, whatever you're going through is to show you a strength in your own character. Embrace it. But it was, it was that hope, right, that, that kept you going and spied off. I mean, you didn't, I mean, even faith, right, for uh, faith people out there. Uh, but it's, it's faith, it's hope. It's just that belief that somehow you're going to be able to get through this. Yeah. Are you, are you still angry at yourself? Uh, no, no, I, I learned to not, not be, um, anymore because I had to really put myself in the position of that 16 year old. Um, I was angry at the 16 year old after I was in prison, maybe five or six or seven years and you know certain things now, certain things you know better than to do now. So you become angry at, well, why did I let them do that? So that went on for a while, but um, I have since understood that they made it seem as if that was the only hope that I had, that I was not going to be able to allow, be allowed to leave that interrogation room unless I did that. Um, and them knowing that I had never even been questioned by police before, uh, stopped by police, uh, let alone be in a precinct, being accused of murder. Um, and from what I was going through and what I had just witnessed and processed, they could have got me to say anything that they wanted to say, just so I didn't have to feel the pressure of being in that room. So I've learned to not be angry at what happened in that uh, interrogation. If you had to, to come face to face with um, the detectives um, <laughs> today, how would you react? Um, I don't really have a reaction. If they are not um, being paraded around publicly the same way they paraded me around publicly publicly for what they do. Um, I I don't really I don't really have anything. And you know, I know why they did what they did. Um, I don't like what they did. I don't have anything for them. You hold I, anything in your heart against them? Are you um do you No, I, I want them I want them I want them to be back in court to tell you all why they did what they did. You see, because you all don't know. So I want them to tell you all what they did. So that's the day I want. So I, other than that, I don't feel anything, but I want them to tell the world what they did and why they did it. Would you forgive them if they asked for your forgiveness? No, no, um, no, because they, um, they maliciously did this. This isn't like someone said, well, I think it was the son or I think, or we have, or we no, they did that. They orchestrated that and they thought that that was going to be a good play. So no, no. What is your greatest fear now? Not being the best version of myself my parents knew I could be. What's that? <laughs> Someone that 
is in control of his life, someone that inspires people, um, someone that people look to when they may not feel too strong about things going on in life. Um, that's pretty much who I am. Um, it's what I've done. It's what I was doing when I was in there. It's what I did when I came home. It's what I continue to do now. So, you know, just trying to be the best version of me that they tried to instill in me, you know, so. This is typically something I never do, um, Hugh, on, on any of my interviews, um, but you are the best version of you. If, if your mom um, were to be alive today, your dad were to be alive today, I'm sure they would look proudly upon a son who, in spite of all that happened to him, chose never to give up, who chose to hold on to the values that they gave him and fought the good fight for 20-something, 30-something years even. Um, it's still standing, it's still sane, it's still smiling, albeit some bitterness, some, some anger and all of that with human, right? But you are the best version of you. There are a lot of people who would look, and that's why we're doing this podcast today because not everyone gets the chance to, to be able to showcase who they are. Not everyone gets the chance to yeah, you got the press conference, you got the publicity and everything else, but you're not reaching a different group of people, not necessarily people who've been through what you went through, but someone may be listening today or watching today who may hear something you say, Hugh, that would set them free for the rest of their lives. So you are the best version of you. Um, and again, I don't advise people, I don't, I don't tell people, but I felt led now to tell you that you are the best version of you. I have a lot of respect for you. You are a strong person. I don't know how I would have survived 20 years fighting for something that I had no hope or no, perhaps, right, uh, that could happen. But you did that. And I'm sure your parents are smiling down on you or they may be uh, very proud of you that you not only exonerated yourself, but exonerated them um in the good name so um you are the best you have the best version of you thank you so much thank you so much i appreciate that what is next for you now uh, as you as you as you live as you live your life you know uh one of the things <laughs> interesting my dad he was a sax player <laughs> so he had a band and he used to tour in europe and um, he broke up the band when my mom wanted to come here to pursue nursing back in 1970. So one of the things that he did pass to me that I did gravitate to was music. Um, and music became very um, pivotal in a lot of things for me, especially while I was gone. Um, so we would actually talk about learning scales and all that stuff over the phone he would actually teach me music theory so and i would go back to the cell and practice on the little keyboard he bought for me um i came home i got much better while there um and came home and still continued to do music but i had missed such a gap in music it went from when i left being all analog and now it is being all digital there's that learning gap that you miss so I'm looking to put myself back into school for like audio engineering. It'd be so, I would like to um, learn that. So. Good for you. Good for you. Do you play any instruments right now? I do. I play keyboards. Do you have a keyboard right there with you? 
Uh, no, I actually have a MIDI keyboard, so it's like it, it has no sound in and of itself. <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have put you on the spot and asked you to play I, something for our listeners. <laughs> but, you know, um, again, it's, it's something that was very pivotal because any time that you want to go into that space and be creative or be reflective, you know, there's always music or some type of artistic expression. So um, it held me... Uh, through many uh, rough days while in there. So, you know, let me try to return the favor and do, do it some justice while I'm out. Absolutely, absolutely. The power of music, right? Power uh, music. Yeah. As we wrap up uh, this, this um, interview here, I want to be respectful of time here. I know you already um, addressed our audience, but any final words, any final thoughts uh, that you have to share as we wrap up this, this interview? Yes. Um, as I, I said earlier, I was talking about our criminal justice reform, and it's a it's a it's a hot button issue now, and it should be. Um, there are a lot of things that need to be addressed with criminal justice uh, in this country. Um, that being said, that has pretty much only been something that has getting been getting a, a lot of momentum over the last. So, I can remember twenty years ago where the governor of New York you know, uh, was saying, you know, they don't, we don't want to let people go. If you don't have to let them go, don't let them go. It was tough on crime. So what I want to say to people is that these things go in phases, but the people who are there are still the same people. Don't let political climate and, 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 and what's going on in the moment change how you view things, man. Um, I'm glad that we're talking about criminal justice reform. We should because there are a lot of things that need to be reformed. Um, however, don't let, allow it to just be a political hot button issue. Yeah. You know, let's really, really get to get on the front lines and do something about it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely beyond politics, even though sometimes politics is, is caught in the midst of it, even mm -hmm. with a whole, you know, racial tension and everything else going on. These are, these are real issues and it's unfortunate that it takes tragedy right to get the attention of to all of us to really do some something about it so i i i do i do agree with you 100 percent i the innocence project is doing a fantastic job um uh, my appreciation go, goes to them for um for making this this interview happen uh, and i know there's several several other people archer williams is one of those people who uh i've been i've been trying to get but hopefully i, I may I'll, I'll get archie uh at some point i'm sure his story but um, man, huge fan of his, yes, man. Yes, yes. I love Archie. I love Archie. I saw him when America's Got Talent, and what a, what a what a personality! What a what a just just the spirit, you know, the joy and that that oozes out of him in spite of all that he went through. Uh, but yeah, I want to say thank you to you again, um, not only for coming on this podcast, but telling your story, but most importantly for being you for for representing a beacon of hope, for representing a beacon of strength um, to, to me and, and for, I'm sure, for anyone watching and, and listening to this podcast. And the very best to you, my friend. Go on and take that course and, and take that music course and hopefully we'll have you back and you know have you play a melody or two for our listeners. But thank you so much, my friend, and God bless you. And to our listeners for watching and listening, uh, thank you as well for tuning in. Thank you. Take care. You as well, my friend. All right. All right.